Welcome back to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast. Which was, Welcome to Deuteronomy, too. That's right. There's Lynn Wilson and John Cho. So Deuteronomy, we talked about numbers. Israel was at the doorstep, had to wander 40 years. Yeah, and now we get an entire book on our last few days <laughs> waiting, and we get Moses' last few sermons where everything's recapitulated right here at the end. If you want to read Moses' sermons, this may not be the exact words, but it's a it's a recapitulation of what we have from Moses right there, right before the end of the Promised Land, before he's translated, according to the Joseph Smith translation, at least. Right. Yeah. So tell me about Deuteronomy as a book. Yeah, the word is uh, coming from the Greek. It means the second law. Um, and the even the Ten Commandments are repeated then. The whole center portion of the entire book I mentioned that it's Moses' sermons. Usually people break it into three sermons, but some people break it into two, some people, you know, whatever. But the central portion from chapters 12 to 26 is a collection of laws. If you do this, then this will happen. And there's curses and blessings and all sorts of things. And then we have Moses' final speech and they leave. So if you start with chapter 1... Um, in the 40th year began Moses to declare unto them, saying, so we know that it's 40 years since the time they left Egypt and they're going into this promised land. We see lots of rebellion um, re rehearsed because Moses's first speech is really a um, a beautiful historical review to build their faith. Look at all we've gone through. Can you see God's hand? Can we look back and see God's hands in our life? So the rebellion is shown and God's grace is shown. And then we have these laws um, in the center portion. And then in Moses's final speech is where we have 14 blessings and 54 curses mentioned. He really wants to make sure they are motivated to, to live the law correctly for the right reasons. But um, he wants them to know there's going to be punishments. But as we look at this collection of laws in this center portion, I really appreciate the Joe Smith translation reminding us that this book is not completely accurate. It, it is not the same tablets that the Lord first gave Moses. And can I just read to you that Joseph Smith change there about the, in this center portion? So Moses says in chapter 10, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, I want you to—the Lord tells him, Hugh— the two other tablets after the ones you broke, you know, he says, which thou has breakest. And then the Joseph Smith translation added, adds, well, it's first added other tablets, but it also adds that these are going to be similar to the ones that you broke, but quote, save the words of the everlasting covenant of my holy priesthood. So Joseph was inspired to say, they they lost the higher priesthood. They lost the ability to come into the presence of God. Only the high priest had that ability once a year. And But the Lord had wanted the whole children of Israel to be prepared for that. But they would now have to wait for that. And in addition to this change, Joseph makes some other changes that I've got. We can talk about at the end when we get to chapter 34 that are powerful. But other biblical scholars has also noticed a lot of heavy, heavy editing in Deuteronomy. Have you ever read anything by Margaret Barker? I haven't. So she is, you were at Oxford. She's at Columbia. So maybe this, I mean, I mean excuse me, not Columbia, Cambridge. Cambridge. So yep. maybe this is why you don't know her because uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Cambridge and Oxford are, are always best friends here. Yeah. <laughs> so she is a biblical scholar who emphasizes in the Old Testament. And in her research, she um, saw that during the time of King Josiah, now King Josiah is reigning right when Lehi is young. It's right before the Babylonian captivity. He comes to the throne as a very young child. It's about 640 B.C., and his scribes and his leaders come in and they start doing a major reform. And the way it's written up in the Bible as it's all good, it's all good. But from that point forward, we see a complete change of focus. I'm sure you remember in Genesis, there was a lot of emphasis of the creator being um, Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, and that we had a lot of both gods mentioned in the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, we have that changed. We are now monotheism. There is never a mention of the two gods again in, in this book. And instead of looking at the nature of God as one who is going to be sacrificed in our behalf, as one who the temple is to lead us into his presence where we have his throne here with us, he's guiding us, and that we do these vicarious sacrifices that will symbolize him, that's all changed now to the law. It is the law that saves us. So she calls these people who did this heavy editing at this time of, you know, right before the destruction of Babylon, uh, Babylon coming in and destroying um, the um, Jerusalem. She calls them, um, after the name Deuteronomy, Deuteronomists. That these Deuteronomists come in, they heavily change the focus that now it's the law that will save you, not the sacrificial Christ that will save you. And in fact, um, later on, these Deuteronomists who are adopted by the rabbinic theories and times of the New Testament, and um, they're the ones who are counting up every single law and adding the 10,000 oral laws. You know, They're the ones who have a really strong um, hope that it will be the law that will save them. So they need to obey the law with complete exactness because this is what they've been taught. They've lost that focus. They combine, they go through the whole... Um, um, scripture and combine all the verses on the coming Messiah, and they do not include anything about a suffering servant. They miss that whole point about the vicarious sacrifice pointing to Christ. Now, Lehi wasn't the only one that got it. Ezekiel got it. Jeremiah got it. And these are prophets who are speaking at the same time as Lehi. And they're pointing to the sacrifice of our Savior as this vicarious sacrifice. But the thing that's so exciting to me about Margaret Barker's research is when I took her her question, is Deuteronomy edited later by these Deuteronomists, and it's no longer Mosaic, we've taken out the nature of God, we've taken out the nature of saving, of salvation, um, and we've made it into a, a different text, um, will we find that in the Book of Mormon? Because the brass plates were written down before Lehi left. And I don't know when they were written down. They have, um, but they're already intact, ready to go at 600 BC. <laughs> so they're written down before that. They've got Isaiah finished. You know, they've got the whole Isaiah there. So um, at least the 700 BC, I think they're finished because Isaiah is 700 BC, give or take. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of take. But as I look at the Book of Mormon, um, I found some really exciting stuff. So as we go through, I'm going to point out a lot of Book of Mormon stuff in relationship to this idea of the text being changed. And the Book of Mormon, again, comes out conquering as an ancient text. It, it, it's 
you know, hearing about this research done by Margaret you know, Barker. Margaret yeah. Barker. And she's written on it. You can read her books. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating because it puts into context obviously Jeremiah and whatnot, but also Lehi's lamentations of you're looking beyond the mark. Right. So this transition away from law, away from Christ. I mean, this is this whole thing. It's like, no, this is about Christ. And so I can absolutely see him, especially when it's coming from the king who's pushing this. Now I even have a little more color of why Well, Lehi's, the king's just a child. I mean, right. I just feel like he's Well, with just, the authority of the king, exactly, right? You yeah. know, so people with the authority of the king who had a strong opinion is like, why would they try to kill him for this opinion? Now it makes more sense. This is this is going against government. It does help you understand not only Lehi, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And Well, Daniel was a young boy when he was taken captive, but he became a prophet then. But they're all the same time period as Lehi. Right. Now. So it, that, that, that makes sense. You know, all of that reconciliation makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Before we get to the um, too far ahead, though, let's open up the text and look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. And Moses begins his sermon by talking about how God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant with, with these people, the children of Israel. He says in verse 8, I have set the land before you, and I want you to possess it. I want you to go forward. I've multiplied you as the stars of heaven. And he goes back to those same words. This is through chapter um, 1, through 8 through 10. But he goes through those same words that Abraham had received and says, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And hold on to it. And then um, he just, as he goes through the history, I love the realization in chapter 4, verse 33, where he says, Did ever a people hear the voice of God speaking out from the midst of fire as thou hast heard and live? You know, he's he's giving all these examples that when those Ten Commandments were given, these people heard them. And um, more law is going to be given again here now in Moses' sermon as he rehearses it. But Moses's—it appears that Moses' first sermon may end right here at the end of chapter 4, and the second sermon begins— there, or other people suggest the second sermon begins, finishes at 11. But um, when I read it, I thought, you know, I'm not enough of a textual scholar um, to make those kind of judgments. But my favorite chapter in Deuteronomy um, is chapter six. So whether or not it's his first sermon or his second sermon, I just like to talk about chapter six. <laughs> it's a sermon, right? <laughs> and because, and it becomes a favorite of all of Israelites because. Um, they turn it into the Shema, the Shema, which was quoted every morning and every night. And later on, by the time of the second temple, the time of the New Testament, this is the verse of scriptures that they put on their doorposts in their little mezuzahs as they walk into their house, they touch it. And this becomes the scriptures that they combine, that they put in the phylacteries that they wrap around their wrist and their head to help them focus on it. And um, I just love to start out with Deuteronomy 6 and read verses 4 through 9 just to hear this beautiful um, counsel of God that became known as the Shema. The word Shema is just the the first letters of the first few words. Um, and it just means hearken or hear and obey or listen up or something like that, you know. Pay attention. I want you to get this message. You know, I want you to respect God. But verse 4 starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And Before, those would have been different words, but no longer is Elohim part of this text anymore. It's it's already been changed to just monotheism. We're only referring to one now. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. 
And these words which I have commanded thee this day shall be in thy heart. I'm sure you've heard these verses before. And isn't it interesting when these are the ones that were so much a part of the New Testament life, so much a part of the rabbinic life. Every morning you recited this. Every night you recited this. And so when they come, the greatest student, um, members of the community come to the Savior and say, what's the most important law? And he says, uh, what's the one you recite every morning and every night? You know? <laughs> thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. <laughs> you know, I mean, Christ just turns right on him and says, uh, it's the one that you know the best. It's the one that every single Jew has memorized, you know. And then continuing on in verse 7, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest on thy way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and upon thy fontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of the house of thy gates. So this is where they start taking them literally later on in the history of the world. But I think what Moses is saying is, I want you to internalize what it means to love God. And so many times in the King James, it talks about fear God, but what Moses is asking is that we love God with all our heart and our soul and our might. And then Christ teaches, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I think that's what Moses was teaching here as well in this sermon. That, that is such, yeah, if you love me, keep my commandments. I, you know, going back to the earlier context we said that he's trying to link the law to the heart again. It was, they've completely Moses overlooked. Is. Yeah, well, Moses is clearly doing it here. Seems like, you know, when, when Christ says, you know, um, oh, you obviously mean Christ does. Right, right. Yes. So he's referring back to this and is like, don't forget this part, which Moses was really trying to say. Yes. Right? And it's interesting that um, I think I mentioned that Deuteronomy is quoted a lot in the New Testament. Yeah. You know, I think we have 44 exact quotes, but some people count up to seven or one, one, one person says 80, but most people say between 54 and 70 innuendos of Deuteronomy that's quoted. But do you remember when the Lord is being tempted by Satan yeah. in the wilderness? He quotes Deuteronomy in his answer. So I know part Deuteronomy was really, really, really well known at the time of the Lord. And one reason why it would have been is because you don't have, most synagogues only have a couple of scrolls. And the most frequently mentioned scroll are the hymns the Psalms, and then Isaiah, and then Deuteronomy. And so the fact that Christ uh, quoted Deuteronomy to Satan is means to me parts of Deuteronomy are valid and are real. So Margaret Barker's statement that Deuteronomy was changed does not mean the whole thing was changed. It meant the focus was changed. A portion of it was changed. And I see this specifically in the Shema. So the the Shema actually grew over a century, over a millennium, to include more than these five verses. But initially, this is what it, the basis of it was. And um, when I looked at the Book of Mormon, I thought, okay, if if the Book of Mormon came from the same time period um, as the Deuteronomists who are changing things, will we find the Shema in the Book of Mormon? If it's so important, will we find it in the Book of Mormon? If this is really what it was. And I was very surprised with what I found. Um, do you remember when um, in the Shema they have that little verse about the children? Um, teach them diligently unto thy children. So I look in the Book of Mormon under teaching children. I think, yeah, we've got lots of those. You know, Nephi starts out, I've been born of goodly parents. You know, my parents are teaching me. 
And yet, listen to this one, 2 Nephi 25, verse 26 and 27. We talk of Christ. We rejoice of Christ. I'm sure you know this yeah, verse very well. Yeah. We all do. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. We write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins. It is not looking to the law. It is looking to the Messiah. Remember, Christ is Messiah in Hebrew. Um, we, we talk of the Messiah because we want our children to go to the Messiah. The Book of Mormon does not take the law and put it in place of the Savior. And then he continues on in verse 27. Wherefore, we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law. And they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward to the life which is in Christ. So I almost see Margaret Barker's theory that Christ or the, the saving the Savior figure of the atoning sacrifice is removed from Deuteronomy by looking at this one little part of the Shema, teach them diligently to your children. And I thought, okay, I'll look at another phrase. So I looked at the phrase, when thou walkest by the way. So this is referring to, I want you to be memorizing the law and the scriptures while you're walking in your, your daily walk. And I want you to be memorizing these 613 commandments or whatever the law was at that time. And so I started looking for walking in the way in the Book of Mormon. And I found Mosiah, Alma, Ether, all saying, when thou walkest in the way of the Lord. So they, they, they keep the Savior integral. It's not the law that you're supposed to be using. We want you to walk in the ways of the Lord in your work. Um, just powerful. And continuing on, I, I looked for the next phrase, when you lie down and when you rise up. And here I found in Alma, when he's teaching his children, counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let your heart be full of thanks to God. So yes, Deuteronomy was there. Yes, these ideas may be coming from the Shema in Deuteronomy, these phrases of laying down and walking and rising and teaching your children and these ideas of having, but it's been denuded of the power of the Messiah's atoning sacrifice, whereas the Book of Mormon puts it in in abundance. It is, this is just one of the most exciting things for me to see um, the Book of Mormon taking the Shema, taking this extremely sacred doctrine to the history of the Jews from the, this time forward and putting back into it, infusing it, bringing it to life with our Savior as our Redeemer. This, this makes me think of a couple of things. I think of Nephi, end of life Nephi or end of life Lehi were some of the most powerful, even King Benjamin, which we've talked about before, these end of life sermons of these powerful servants, right? And this is Moses you know, end doing of life this. Servant. Yeah, mm -hmm. these end of life, end, end of life sermons um, that are just so wonderful and powerful. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at chapter six and just how, I don't know how else to say it, but how native it feels. It just it seems very familiar compared to say, you know, Leviticus, right? <laughs> or, or, or other types of text. Um, and uh, it speaks to my heart very fluently, I guess is, is a different way of saying it. Um, and so, so I love that, but also it, it keeps me wary of, of like, you know, um, I need to make sure that my heart is 
continually pointed to Christ. Yes. Because if I make it about the law, which is the day-to-day, right? You know, mm-hmm. keep the Sabbath. Okay, here's what I do, right? Um, you know, et cetera. But that constant nourishment, like, you know, you cannot check out. You cannot just be sit back and just be told what to do. I that want is it before your not, eyes. I want it on yeah. your hands. I want I want your thoughts and your your hands and your heart to all be focused on coming right. into God. Don't forget. Listen. Right? The listen, law is important. Listen, obey, don't, don't hearken. Forget. Yeah. Um, hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Yeah, it's just really empowering. And he continues on, I guess, in the next chapters um, to say, I want to bless you with this good land, and I want you to come. And there's going to be—I I just love this when He's describing the land here. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 7, 8. The Lord thy God will bringeth thee into this good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and depths of springs out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. I mean, you know, these poor guys are so tired of manna, and these children have never tasted anything but manna. They can, their mouths are watering here. And he continues on saying, um, okay, if you want to enter, then you're going to— God's going to require some stuff of you. And that's starting in chapter 10. Uh, this is, excuse, me, excuse me, I'm quoting from chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. Israel, what doth the Lord God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God. And I, we've already talked about this. When this word is in the imperfect tense in the Hebrew, it often refers to inspiring or reverence or sacred. It causes astonishment or awe, you know, that we need to um, be inspired to revere the Lord at all times, then we can walk in his ways and love him and serve him with all of our heart, um, really, and all of our soul to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I commanded him this day for thy good. So he's saying, the whole reason why I give you these commandments is all for your benefit. That's verse 13, Deuteronomy 10, 13, um, which I commanded thee this day for thy good. And then the sermon um, focuses on all the specific stipulations of the covenant contract. And he starts out with worship in chapter 12, who and where and how we're to worship Jehovah. And um, if you don't, it's a lot of if-then clauses. If you go whoring after other gods, this is Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If, then, you know, you're going to be destroyed. We want to kill those. We don't want any false gods in our community. And, um, but many of these specific stipulations, like there we've mentioned earlier, are the ties, the year of release for slaves, the food for the poor, the gleaners uh, options. And I just, I think so much of the law is filled with taking care of the innocent and the poor. And, you know, it's interesting to look at the slave codes. Um, in Exodus, it says, the men can be released every six years on this year of release. Your debts are released. Your slavery is released so that you're never a slave that long. Um, but in Deuteronomy, it says the women can be released too. Um, and I, I guess it depends if you were acting as a, a a wife to your master or not. Because if you're acting as a wife, you'd need to stay, I guess. But Deuteronomy doesn't explain that stipulation. They just say the women can be released after the seventh year unless they want to stay with their master because they don't get to take their children with them. So if they have born children, then they take their ear on the door and it is pierced. They put a hole in it. And that 
hole in somebody's ear is a representation that they, they are then a servant for life. They are a slave for life. They've chosen that. It's their choice, though. And that rule stays all the way through the New Testament, that this law of Moses is carried out all the way through the end. You know, the, the people at the time of the Roman Empire who are in the Judaic culture are living this law. In the Roman Empire, they have different laws on it, but um, it's, it's, I think it's wonderful that if you come over hard times, just work for six years, and then, I love it, um, in chapter um, they also say, when it's time to leave your service, make sure you're, you give your slaves um, at the end of the six years lots. Give them extra money. Give them some help. Give them you know, some animals. You know, give them a good head start. So it's terrific. Um, I always like the three pilgrimage feasts because I'm one who likes taking pilgrimages, whether they're to our church history sites or to the Holy Land. Um, Deuteronomy 16 refers to that three times a year. This is 1616. Quote, three times a year ye shall all the males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of the unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, and the feast of the tabernacles. So early spring for your Passover, um, 50 days later for your Pentecost, your week feast of weeks, seven, seven times seven weeks, and then the feast of the tabernacles. Um, and, the, and then it continues on, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. You know, they've got to bring their tithes. They've got to bring their first fruits. They've got to bring the things that they're going to offer to the Lord. And if we want to look at the Book of Mormon, can you see any of those pilgrimages in the Book of Mormon? I guess we mentioned it a little bit earlier, haven't we? Right. It depends how you think of pilgrimages. There's certainly lots of journeys. Yeah. Um, I do think of King Benjamin as a, as a pilgrimage to the temple because everyone's yeah, pitching their tents. People are all there. They're all coming in. They're at the temple. And it... it, it this is interesting. At the Feast of the Tabernacles, you're supposed to recite the law. And that's what King Benjamin does. And also coronations often fell at the Feast of the Tabernacle. So a lot of the kings chose to have their coronation ceremonies done at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And that's exactly what King Benjamin did with his son, Mosiah. And Jack Welch, John, John W. Welch has published on this, and he even goes down to the details of how many times the name of the Lord is mentioned in King Benjamin's sermon, and it parallels to how many times the name of the Lord is to be mentioned in the, the details later on um, in the Levitical law um, at this Feast of the Tabernacles when they are be coming before the altar of, before the Lord. It seems like Moses, really in these books, is you know I, I kind of review these scriptures with you, or as we review them together, this really sets the culture for hundreds of years. Oh, I'm glad you said that, because this legal code is really quite generous and different than the legal codes that they find right. in Mesopotamia, in, right. in, in the Assyrian world. You know, this legal code becomes the basis for many, yeah. Yeah, I mean Western civilization at this point. Exactly. So, so you know, because I'm reading through Exodus and we see hints of this, and but but this, you know, rereading Deuteronomy, this really feels like okay, this is Moses's last. Mm -hmm. You know, people I think understand that. Yeah. Do, do you think they do? Do do, do, do they that? know that this is sort of Moses's? Oh, 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 yeah, because he says he's not going to go with them. Yeah. He actually, we're not quite there at the end of the book, but do you remember when he brings Joshua forward and tells the people that Joshua will be their leader? So the the transfer of authority is very clear. And so, so they take that to heart for hundreds of years, which is remarkable to me. You could, like you could argue thousands, you know, if you count today's legal structure still based 
-hmm. largely on these principles. And I also feel like you just mentioned something about, uh, or we just talked about the change of power and authority. Um, In addition to having Joshua take over for Moses, Moses also testified in one of our, my favorite prophecies in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, quote, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, and unto him ye shall hearken. And when the Savior comes in third Nephi, do you remember he tells them, Moses said, someone would come up like him, that's me, that's me, I'm, I'm the person, you know. So that's another way that I see, yes, they are living the law of Moses. Yes, they do have these scriptures because Christ identifies himself through this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Or they don't have chapters then, but you get, you get the message, yeah. It's third Nephi 20, verse 23. And also Stephen quotes it. Oh, oh, I forgot. Moroni quotes this one. So we have it in all four standard works. This verse is quoted in all four standard works. That's, there, there are very few verses that we have in all. That's, that's terrific. It's, um, it's in the book of Acts. And um, so our Savior, this goes back to my image of this exodus cycle. Our Savior is what it's all pointing to. And if we can look in our own lives to see the Savior, it will benefit us as well. Do you want to go on to chapter 19 or do you want anything else in 18? Okay. One of the legal codes that is introduced here that I'm really impressed with is the city of refugee. So for someone who's killed someone accidentally, before someone takes revenge on you, go to one of the cities of refuge until you can get a fair trial or until you can find, um, you know, until you can prove your case. And um, I'm sure they didn't have attorneys like we have attorneys. I'm using legalese verbiage, but these cities of refuge um, were such a forward thinking. The law of Moses helps not only the poor and the women and the widows, but it it helps the people who are misjudged. Um, I just think there's so much goodness here. And in that same chapter is where he says, you're not going to condemn anybody without two or three witnesses. You know, one person's witness, sorry, it's not one man against another man. You know, you've got to have a or whatever the situation is, which is a great legal code that we still practice now. But I think as he finishes up this legal code, we enter into the, um, where the, where Moses says, okay, so if you want all these blessings, if you want this great law, this great lifestyle, and he's trying to prepare a people of Zion. I mean, he's trying to prepare a society without poor among them. He's trying to prepare people who are one heart and one mind. He wants them to be like King Benjamin's people where they can make a covenant to serve the Lord. And he says, so this is what you have to do. And fortunately, they all say, yes, we want to. We want to serve the Lord. And um, chapter 26 um, speaks about, if you want to come, you are stewards of my land, and I need you to bring the first fruits. You're hungry. You want the very first foods for yourself. You're so excited to taste these pomegranates again. Um, No, you need to give the first fruits to me. You need to show me that you trust that I will provide for you. So give me your first fruits to show your level of faith. You know, pay your tithing at the beginning of the month or as soon as you get your, you know, at the very beginning. And he talks about being stewards of the land, not only with the tithing, but also um, I don't want you to hurt some of these people. I don't want you to kill out the Moabites. Those are my people. And you only, I will tell you who needs to leave, who has been 
whose wickedness is full. And I will tell you who, and you obey my voice. Um, but he's asking them to, to develop a lot of faith in order to trust him. And I feel like that's our role in the latter days. This is one reason why the prophet keeps asking us to increase our ability to hear and understand the voice of the Lord is because we have to know what his voice sounds like to increase our faith enough so that we can handle the challenges. And because they are going into a very challenging time to in right. taking out the people of that land. I, I think, you know, my mind paused on the tithe concept, right? You know, the yes. first fruits, because again, these were people complaining about melons and onions. I wanted to... <laughs> well, hopefully those were all gone. That was the old generation. That's true. That's the old generation. Yeah. They, they had organized a rebellion because they wanted these kinds of things. And, and of course that prophecy, your children will inherit this. And this is Moses's sort of yep. repromising. This is the new generation. Yeah, He's repromising the new generation. Yep. That, you know, that your children will inherit this. Um, but, but what about the tithes? What were you going yeah, to on well, the tithes? Well, this idea of, okay, I'm about to bless you with prosperity. We're in the wilderness now. Mm -hmm. I'm about to bless you with an amazing amount of prosperity. But there needs to be some laws in place, really important and strict ones, to help you not forget, right? I keep coming back to this, mm -hmm. you know, and how do you tithing, remember? tithing, though, is always about faith. It's not about the money. It never it, is about the money. Never. It's always about faith. It's just, it's this moment, like, I don't want your life to be about melons, right? Yeah. Or or obviously cash or cars, you know, modern days, you know, houses, whatever. It, it really, you know, I want to bless you. I want to bless you, but don't let it corrupt you, right? And so so put this, get this out of the way first, right? Yeah, and interesting, first. he has them also make a physical memorial. You know, he has them take the, the stones out and from the middle of the Jordan River and make a memorial. And he wants them to write it down and study it. So I am sure that a lot of these things in Deuteronomy were actually there. The things that I think um, Dr. Barker, Margaret Barker, is uh, offended by that was removed is the removal of the temple, of the importance of the tabernacle, the importance of that role of the, of the sacrifice for salvation, of the priesthood role in salvation. And that part is taken out here in Deuteronomy. Um, but the Lord is trying to make a holy people. I, I'm really glad you you brought it to our modern world, too, because before Christ comes again, we have got to be a holy people. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 9, and this is after the 14 blessings and 54 cursings, he says, The Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. So that's the if then, you know, he wants us to be this holy people. And I feel like we're in the same place. We've been, we've been at the foothills of our Zion society too long. We've been at the foothills of Sinai. We've been at the foothills of, of the promised land. We need to move forward and make sure there is no poor among us. We need to be living the law of consecration. We need to be living the law of the gospel with all of our heart. And the law of the gospel is Christ's new commandment, not the old commandment, to love as Christ loves and um, that's when Moses closes his sermon and turns it over to Joshua. Should we go on to 31? Let's go, let's go on to Joshua. 30, yeah, yeah, this is important. 31, call Joshua and present yourselves to the tabernacle of the congregation that I may give him a charge. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar. And um, that Fire is there, and I'm just so honored to have tradition in our f history that 
Kirtland Temple had a fire on top at the dedication and the neighbors brought their fire buckets and we can feel the spirit of God like a fire is burning in our hearts. And um, then Moses gives this beautiful blessing and everyone knows that um, Joshua is going to take over. But Moses' blessings to the tribes reminded me a little bit of Jacob's blessings to his 12 sons. And do you remember when he gives Joseph's blessing? It's beautiful and it's a little better than anybody else's. And and Moses does the same thing to the tribe of Joseph. It's just beautiful. Do you want to read it? Or let's, do you want me yes, to read let's, it? Yeah, let's read it, please. Um, chapter 33. It starts in about verse 13. He said, Blessed of the Lord, and he puts of the land, and I'm going to skip down a little bit. Verse 16 or so, halfway through, he says, Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. And then in 17, he continues on, His glory shall be like the firstlings of his bullock. His horns are like the horns of unicorns. And with them, so with his strength, unicorn obviously was may not have been the word in Hebrew, right. <laughs> but King James. Wild um, ox, yeah. I think. With yeah. them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim. And the thousands of Manasseh, to me, this is testifying of, of our responsibility of being Ephraimites now, as being do- adopted into the tribe of Joseph or, or pure bloods of Joseph. I don't know. Our responsibility is to use our power and push together the ends of the earth to prepare for our Savior's coming so that he can take us into a promised land, not the land with of the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem where our Savior will come again and reign in righteousness. That is such a powerful blessing to Joseph that fits right into us now. So I think it's a wonderful connection. I, I just, I'm, you know, as I'm sort of just, you know, thinking through all, all things we've talked about today and just, again, looking at Deuteronomy as a whole, um, I can't help but feel, you know, at Moses in her life, how scary this was for Israel and yet comforting as he's going through these blessings. Well, isn't that you how know? it is in our life too? It always Anytime is. Anytime you go on a mission, it's, it's the <laughs> it's scariest terrifying. thing you've done, but it's also the most exciting it's thing you've exciting. done. And... Yeah. I just, I feel some of this as I'm reading, uh, I'm reading this blessing, you know, which, which applies to me personally too, right? Of course. Uh, and to many to of, us. of us. Um, how scary that freedom is and responsibility, but how exciting those blessings are. But we don't have in Deuteronomy the correct ending. Deuteronomy has the Lord burying Moses up on the mountain. And nobody knows where he's buried because the Lord did it. But fortunately, um, we get additions to that in the Joseph Smith translation of Deuteronomy 34, verse 6. And Joseph added, For the Lord took him unto his fathers, therefore... No man knoweth where his sepulcher is. And we know from the New Testament that Moses is on the Mount of Transfiguration giving keys, just like Elijah. And um, then again, he comes back to the Kirtland Temple. And on that, I think it was Palm Sunday, or was that one Easter Sunday? Anyway, it was the week after on the April 3rd, um, during the week of Passover, when Joseph is praying and Moses and Elijah and Elias and the Savior come and give keys and the sealing power is then restored. 
just powerful messages. It's so we're so blessed to have the illumination of modern scripture to look at the ancient scriptures to help them say yes, the covenant is still intact. There's one other thing I wanted to add as I look at the Book of Mormon. When Nephi is trying to build the faith of his brother in 1 Nephi 17, do you remember the, the brothers, are, Laman and Lemuel, are just so confused at their dad's vision of the tree of life? You know, what, what's going on here? And so Nephi rehearses this Exodus account to his brothers, and he goes through all these things that testify of Christ, and he ends with, but the children of Israel did harden their hearts from time to time. And they did revile against Moses and also against God. Nevertheless, ye know that they were led forth by his matchless power into the land of promise. And I think that that is going to be something that will have to be used on our hearts as we um, carry on the great work of building the kingdom to prepare for the second coming. Yeah, I love that. I've, I've just loved the time spending, you know, with you reviewing this Old Testament. Deuteronomy had so many Book of Mormon references, I think. So many. Uh, and this has been a wonderful time to spend reviewing that. And, you know, as we review that sort of second question, how's the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? I don't think there's a clearer in the scriptures than Deuteronomy of how the Book of Mormon is just so powerful. Oh, I don't know. So Genesis important. for me is Genesis still... is pretty good too. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> Maybe I don't it's recency know. I don't bias. Know. I think for Genesis. Me, <laughs> for me, the, 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 the Book of Deuteronomy, especially with those insights we talked about today of, you know, how does this happen historically? Why, you know, what's the context of Lehi? That's so wonderful and powerful. Um, and of course, Joseph's, you know, commentary on it, I suppose the Lord's commentary where, that was restored through Joseph, um, you know, this book has come much more alive for me um, as, you know, as we really look through the lens of the Book of Mormon. It does. You know. Great. Wonderful. I look forward to talking to you about Joshua next week. Yeah. We actually get to go into the promised land. Yeah. We get there. <laughs> 40 years are over. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.